Father, we lift up your holy name in this place today. Those of us who have been saved by grace through faith and trust in Christ's blood alone as the cleansing agent from our sins, we rejoice that you have seen fit to display within us a stage for your grace and for your mercy. Your glory is shown forth, it shines forth from those you have redeemed. You have pulled us from the death-deserving sin, from the hell-deserving sin that each one of us was caught in, in the quagmire of our own works, in the quagmire of our own nature. And you have ransomed us and redeemed us and set us apart, made us sanctified and sacred by the power of Christ's work imputed to us. His righteousness now shines through your believers as evidence and ground of our justification. And we thank you, Lord, for these truths. We also thank you as we look across the landscape of history that therein as well is a showcase of your glory. You have ordained and decreed from before time began that which comes uh, to place as we march forward, Lord, as the record of your will and intentions unfolds, revealing to us a bit more of your inscrutable wisdom. You are great and merciful. You are powerful and wise. You are just and holy. You are true and eternal. And for these reasons and so many more, we give you praise. We acknowledge your glory and we pray that you might change us. We pray that you would correct and equip your church, that you would convict and direct us into ways that might bring you more glory still. We pray that you would open our ears to hear and eyes to see the glories of Christ revealed in all of his holy word. We pray that you would uh, sharpen our witness so that we might accurately describe and consistently affirm the gospel by, by which we are saved. We pray that you would use these moments together, this service, to accomplish these things, that your word might go forth, that your kingdom might grow, and your people might show forth your praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege we have, an immeasurable one, one that money can't buy to join together in the assembly of the beloved and to consider in this worship service the greatness of our God, His glory, His power, His authority, His dominion. And two key words for our service today, our sermon, it would, those would be His majesty and His strength. These are the themes of Psalm 93. This morning, Psalm 93 will be our text in our Psalm a Month series. Second Sunday of the month, we, we've been considering the Psalms for many years. Today, we will consider Psalm 93 under this title, Universal Lordship. Universal Lordship. Instead of universal, you could say total lordship or comprehensive lordship. Absolutely thorough uh, rule and reign and authority, dominion, sovereignty, power of our God is is the theme, may I submit, of Psalm 93. The aim of this morning's message, therefore... What I will attempt to do is to follow the logic of the author of Psalm 93, thereby proving the glory of God. Following the logic of Psalm 93, demonstrating or proving the glory of God. Would you stand with me again out of reverence for God's holy word? And listen in your hearing today as the word of God is proclaimed from Psalm 93, verses 1 through 5. Here is the infallible word of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. 
Verse 3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. This is the word of God. You may be seated. How many books are in the Psalter? Quick trivia question for you. The book of Psalms, in case you don't know, is separated into books. Does anyone know how many there are? One of you young people, perhaps? Uh, back there? Three, I hear. I hear a five up here. Any other guesses? Four? Well, five is correct. Five is correct. There are five books in the Psalms. You can uh, remember this because there are five books at the beginning of the Bible, the Pentateuch, or a book of five, or five books that is sometimes called Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And similarly, in fivefold fashion, there are five books in the Psalter. Today, we consider a psalm from book number four. And we will also mention briefly, by way of introduction, a final psalm from book number three. Sometimes it's a good refresher to remind ourselves that there's certain structure to the psalms. They're not, they, don't, uh, stand, they don't only stand alone, but they stand in a collection. Today, though just five verses in length, Psalm 93 introduces an extensive theme for book number four of the Psalter. This theme is the kingship and authority of God, or as it is over and over again stated, Yahweh. Again, a reminder, when you see in your text the word Lord in all caps, big letter, big capital letter L, and then three smaller capital letters, O-R-D, that is the way the, in the English The word Yahweh, the highest or most holy name for God, at least in the Hebraic culture, the the name of the Lord as it was self-disclosed by God Himself to Moses, I am the covenant keeper, the self-sufficient one. When you see that term Lord in all caps, you know that Yahweh is spoken of. So again, the theme for book four, reiterated in our psalm today and many others, is the kingdom and authority of Yahweh Himself. In the sequence of ideas unfolding in the central portion of the Psalms, this song of praise supplies reassuring perspective, and it does not stand alone. Turn with me to book three and consider, just by way of quick review, Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is the last song in book number three. And notice the lament, the words of sadness that it closes with starting in verse 38 as an example. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. It goes on again to lament certain circumstances. What is the cry? What is the cause for the sadness? It is the dissolution, it's the unraveling of the Davidic political kingdom. The nation of Israel, incorporated under David and his descendants, is falling apart. Israel and Judah will both end up in exile, causing the psalmist to cry out in verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, of which your enemies mock, O Lord, of which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. 
There yet remains a closing hopeful praise in verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Now, as we consider this in context, we see the book, that book three closes with this ominous note of lament occasioned by the unraveling of the Davidic kingdom in its political expression. However, book four introduces a mini-hymnal, if you will, of praise psalms acknowledging the immovable and eternal kingdom and authority of the one true God. Today's psalm is along the lines of that theme. Putting two and two together, we see the following. David's children may send Israel into exile and slavery of a greater nation. But if they ultimately swear allegiance to Yahweh, they are citizens of a kingdom that will never be shaken, and their king's realm extends unto all things for all time, and their ultimate hope is not in a normal son of David, but in an extraordinary son of David. Who is he? Who is the son of David to come? Can you answer that question, church? More specifically, who is the son of David? Jesus Christ, that is correct. And so we see that there is hope, even though the political realm of David's kingdom is unraveling. And this hope is built upon the ultimate authority and the eternal kingdom of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, whose son would come in the lineage of David, but fully God and fully man in the appropriate time to establish his kingdom on earth. The universal lordship of Yahweh is proclaimed all through book four, and particularly in chapters 93, Psalms 93 through 100, which all build on this theme. And our psalm today kind of introduces this section, if you will. The universal lordship of Yahweh is proclaimed in our text today as a reality, quote, from everlasting in verse 2. Notice in Psalm 93, 2, your throne is established of old, you are from everlasting. The covenant with David may have fallen on hard times so far as it depends on man. But the covenant that God has made with His people so far as it depends on Him is unassailable. He is from everlasting. His throne is established from old, and He will always be a source of hope for His people. Psalm 93 declares similarly, or 94 declares similarly in this totalizing language, that He is above all gods. Excuse me. He is the judge of all the earth. Psalm 94, 2. Psalm 95, He is above all gods. Key phrases from these psalms. He, comm- he commands, sing to the Lord all the earth. In Psalm 96, 1. All people see His glory. Psalm 97, 6. All the ends of the earth have seen His salvation. Psalm 98, 3. He is exalted over all the peoples, Psalm 99.2. Psalm 100 verse 1 bids all the earth to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And in case you hadn't noticed, that word all appears often. Why? Because it's emphasizing the scope, the range, the authority of God's kingdom, the reach of His power and authority. And as we take this by contrast, so much for the assumption that the ancient Hebrews entertained parochial and cultural informed notions of religions like that of their pagan neighbors. This slate of psalms that I've listed just a few examples of today, this slate of psalms alone demonstrates that nothing could be farther from the truth. 
we should also note that in this section of the Psalms, from Psalm 92, in fact, all the way to Psalm 107, the hallowed name of God that we mentioned before, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, self-sufficient sovereign over all, and particularly in covenant faithfulness to His people, that hallowed name is referenced in the first stanza of every single one of these Psalms, Psalms 92, all the way through 107. Yahweh, therefore, is the subject and occasion for these 16 consecutive songs as His name appears in the first stanza of each one and calls His people's attention to His glory and provides hope even in the midst of trying circumstances, pointing them to the source and ground of their eternal hope in His kingdom, His authority, and so forth. So with that introduction, let me give you a heading to organize our five verses today. The heading is, The Majesty majesty and Strength of Yahweh Evident in Four Ways. Number one, the laws of nature. Majesty and strength of Yahweh evident in the laws of nature. Number two, His majesty and strength evident in divine timelessness. Number three, majesty and strength evident in the wonders of nature. And finally, evident in His divine decree. Perhaps these are four themes that we can gather by which to organize Psalm 93 to reinforce to our own souls, as the church at this time needed, that the majesty and strength of Yahweh never fail us and are always a source of hope, no matter the difficulty and uncertainty and the fearful circumstances we might otherwise survive in our day-to-day experience. Number one, the majesty and strength of Yahweh evident in the laws of nature. 93.1, the Lord reigns, He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, He has put on strength as a belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Laws of nature inferred by that last phrase, the world is established, established, and it shall never be moved. There are certain constants, there are certain reference points, even in the natural realm, that speak to the majesty and strength of our God. There is poetic language here employed as well, however, raiment language, clothing or apparel. The Lord is robed, it says, in majesty. It also says that He is belted, if you will, in strength. What does this mean? Well, robes are a significant point uh, to illustrate, or they're a significant picture to illustrate something throughout the course of our text, and they are not foreign to the history of royalty. This robed imagery, being robed in majesty, denotes kingly garments, robes, raiment, which would have stood all through history for position, status, authority, Renown, official capacity, regal glory is pictured in the robes of the king. Have you ever seen, maybe on television, even in modern times, there are vestiges of this and traditions like that in England and so forth. Have you ever seen a coronation ceremony? In a coronation ceremony, what goes on the head of a king or queen, young people? Yes, and what do they often wear and it trails behind them? Robes, that's correct. And out of everybody in the coronation ceremony, who stands out as the most brilliantly dressed or the most gloriously clothed? It would. (laughs) Well, Israel's giving us his subjective opinion. However, in in light of the purpose of the ceremony, the robes and the jewels upon the head and upon the frame of the royal, the sovereign, 
are meant to indicate something. His position, his status, his authority, his rule, his sovereignty, and the reign of his kingdom. Now, when it comes to mere human kings, these things are often symbolic, and they ascribe to a mere human more authority and more significance than they themselves in their frailty, in their finitude, and their bad decision-making, in their sinfulness, have the strength or ability to bear. No mere king can uh, you know, command the worship of his, uh, of his subjects without pretending to be somebody he's not. However, there is one monarch who is the exception to this mere human rule, and that is the Lord Yahweh himself. He reigns and he is robed in majesty. His robes that he wears, they're not some symbolic entrapment of some manufactured ceremony to generate a myth around his person and position. No, he is robed in majesty itself. When you think of the glorious authority and power of our God to maintain, to sustain the systems of this universe, you are looking upon evidence of the glory of our God. You are witnessing the raiment of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have glimpsed the robes of His majesty that uh, are available for us to see that point to His power, His sovereignty, His glory, and His authority. This is the idea of what it means to be robed. The robed uh, monarch denotes imagery of kingly garments and raiments that speaks to His position. Yahweh is clothed in majesty itself, not as a symbolic show, but as a substantial reality. Let me turn you to a cross-reference, Isaiah chapter 6. If you were to witness a coronation, something like a coronation ceremony of the King of Kings, if you were to enter into the presence of the one that is clothed in majesty and belted in truth, what might that experience be like? Isaiah answers this question in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon what? Upon a throne, high and lifted up. And what was he wearing? It says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. These are the same ideas as Psalm 93. The earth is established, it shall never be moved. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The natural realm, the natural laws which testify to a designer and to a maintainer are the robes, if you will, of majesty that God Himself displays so that His subjects may look upon Him in awe and wonder at His power and His rule. And so it is in this picture, in Isaiah's account, he sees the Lord robed in majesty, if you will. And this imagery denotes something similar to Psalm 93, the train of His robe fills the temple. Indeed, if you will, the whole earth is full of His glory. What happens next? The foundations, verse 4, of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And notice Isaiah's response. I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pause there and return to that passage, citing a few more verses, perhaps at the close of this message. Suffice it to say for now that this is a similar picture. Isaiah beholds the Lord robed in His majesty, and it moves him to worshipful brokenness. Brokenness of his own state of sinful uh, unworthiness in the presence of such glory, such awesome splendor. If you were to, back to our analogy, to attend a coronation ceremony, if you came sweaty from your last workout wearing a wife beater, a tank top, and your spandex shorts, and let's say you had flip-flops on and you looked around, you might feel, you ought to feel, really out of place. Everyone else is dressed to befit the presence of a king. And here you are, smelling, needing deodorant and a shower, with no clothing fit for the occasion. This is what it's like for a sinner to stand in the presence of a holy God. Do you think if you were to witness the unadulterated, unveiled glory and majesty and strength of the Lord Himself, do you think you could stand in His presence and feel comfortable in your sin? No. You would shake in your boots as Isaiah did. You would quake before the one who is the sovereign over the Lord and Lord over the universe as Peter did when he sees his Messiah stilling the seas with a mere word from his voice. This is the idea. John chapter 12 verse 41 tells us by the testimony of the apostle that this vision that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 of his prophecy was a vision, yes, of Yahweh, and yes, of Jesus Christ Himself. He saw Jesus, as it were, robed in majesty, belted in strength. The idea of belting refers to action. Belts were used as they served a utilitarian purpose. That is, when a warrior would march into battle, he would gird up his loins, and the belt served a practical purpose. Also, it would, you know, often be the place where a sword would be fixed and so forth. So we have robes representing majesty, belt representing strength. We have power in position and authority, and we have that power demonstrated in action. The actions of the Lord in salvation and all through history. From uh, before time began, the activity of the Godhead speaks to His strength and His majesty. It is evident in these things. This imperial legacy, that is, that which we can see even in the natural realm itself, speaks as the psalmist records whose majesty and strength. Again, he says, the world is established, it shall never be moved. The world is the empirical or the objective or the observable legacy of the majesty and strength of our God in part, which allows us to view the authority, the universal lordship of our God. This second part of verse 1 indicates the effects of Yahweh's reign on the physical world and on the human experience. The statement presumes that the material realm is delimited, that means its parameters, its precise limitations are established by the Lord. This phrase also presumes that it is designed, that it is created specifically by a superior intelligence and that it is enduring. It will forever serve the purposes until God says the time is full and then it will be established even beyond 
the time of natural history in the new heavens and new earth. When the psalmist writes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. It speaks to the limits that God has established in the laws of nature, if you will, and other things. It speaks to a design, a purpose for which it was ordained, and it speaks to an enduring quality that will testify to the majesty and strength of our God on into the future. That is to say, the works of God are manifested in His providential care and His eschatological, that means future purposes for creation. The works of God are manifested in His care and purposes for creation. So therefore, these realities will not be thwarted or threatened, ultimately speaking. The majesty and strength of God, indeed His glory itself, is invested in the fortunes of the earth. If God's majesty and strength, if His glory is invested in the fortunes of the earth, then it will not be moved, it will not be shaken, unless and until God moves. Can man destroy the purposes of God? Can man obscure by his own authority and will to power the evidence of God's strength, the evidence of his majesty? Of course not. Will he try? Will he claim to do so? Yes. Uh, these days, have you guys heard of the Green New Deal? This is the latest and greatest repackaging of hysteria by the left, generally speaking, and the politicians, you know, the powers that be, the monarchs, if you will, the sovereigns, if you will, of our society, they're proclaiming something. They're proclaiming a future demise unless we act now. Did you guys know we have 12 years to act? And if we don't, this earth will suffer irreparable damage? What is underneath this claim? That the future of the earth depends on the will and the politics of man. That the future of this globe and its vitality depends on man's actions entirely. And if he doesn't act, if he doesn't preserve and save himself and spare his own future, then apocalypse will be upon us. We'll go back and do a little research and see if the end hasn't been proclaimed by these doomsday crackpot prophets for years and years. You can go back 20 years ago and hear them saying, we have 10 short years to act. What do we witness as those who deny God and the uh, parameters, the delimitations of his world um, in their speech and in their worldview. What do we witness in these kinds of professions? We witness a denial of Psalm 93, and every claim to the contrary will be proven foolishness. Why? Because ultimately the world is established and it shall not be moved, and it is done so by the hand of God. Now, there is a call to Christian stewardship, and God has given us the great privilege of serving alongside Him in a way that, should, uh, that we should take seriously to concur and to work alongside His purposes in the earth. But if you are so proud to think that you can thwart God's purposes when He has staked His glory on the enduring reality of this world and the realm that He reigns over, you are a fool. Such will never be the case. This world is delimited, designed, and it is enduring. God establishes the preconditions, in fact, for any science to proceed. The very claim to authority that preaches to us, we better act now or things will uh, fall apart in some green apocalypse, the very preconditions for any true science to proceed depend on God Himself. Why should we believe there would be predictable outcomes in this universe? Why should we trust the laws of physics to be true tomorrow as they are as we can observe today? 
Why should we trust the reality of cause and effect relationships? Why should the process of induction or inference to the best explanation carry any weight in the scientific method? Brothers and sisters, all of those disciplines, all of those aspects of science presume certain continuity by which God Himself is the foundation. It's because God has established the earth and it shall not be moved that there is such a thing as laws of physics. Now, you might just take those for granted. But Psalm 93 calls you to acknowledge that those are evidence of God's strength and His majesty. The laws of science that we depend on to better our future, to understand the universe, to make discoveries, to advance in technology, all of them are predicated on the God who maintains and sustains this material universe. You are messing with holy things. You are interacting with the sacred realm because this world stands and displays all of these attributes because the Lord is robed in majesty and, his, and is belted in strength, and therefore the world is established, and it shall not be moved. The majesty and strength of Yahweh are evident, yes, even in the laws of nature. Secondly, divine timelessness. Majesty and strength of God are evident in the nature of him as beyond time. Verse 2, your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. Your throne, again, reference to authority, much like robes indicating the majesty of the sovereign, so throne indicates the power and the authority, the right ability to judge the people. That is what throne indicates. We are obsessed with these uh, concepts in our world today, you might think in modern terms and postmodernism and uh, the secularism of you know, man's advancement that he would transcend hierarchies itself. That seems to be the overriding value. You know, uh, any hierarchy is oppression, the world tells us. But why are people absolutely captivated by these pagan TV shows that celebrate hierarchy and, and cause us to be fascinated, you know, things like Game of Thrones and so forth? Shows about royalty and uh, stories about superior beings and powers and superhero movies and so on and so forth. It is to testify to this fact that God has created an order in His universe that presumes hierarchy and therefore we cannot change the terms and circumstances of the way reality is structured. We can in our sin try to deny it, but like a, like a suppressed truth, it will always resurface. And the truth is, in Psalm 93, 2, that hierarchy is established according to the Lord's Word and on the basis of His nature. His throne is established from old. He is from everlasting. Throne speaks to authority. He is imminent and eminent. Imminent meaning He is directly involved in the details of our life and all of history. Eminent meaning He is over and above, superintending all from the past into the future according to His will and decree. There is no chaotic origin story accounting for the world as we have come to know it. You may hear chaotic origin stories even in quasi-science again. People who refer to neo-Darwinism, that is accounting for reality on the basis of evolution over time without a sovereign, a designer. This is merely, may I suggest, the worship of time itself. We don't worship time. We are not, ultimately speaking, neo-Darwinists as Christians. We worship the God who is over time, outside of time, not bound by time. God is not like you and me. 
He knows the end from the beginning. All of history and all of time, it bows to Him and to His authority. And so He is the one that we worship. His throne is established from of old. He is from everlasting. We see this divine timelessness as it's referenced by His authority with reference to throne through time, from of old. History, we have said in other messages, is biblically speaking, time measured by the progress of redemption. You could go further to say it this way, history, that is, events taking place over time from our perspective. History is a stage upon which the majesty and strength of our Lord are showcased. History, a stage upon which the majesty and strength of our Lord are showcased. Give it enough time and you will see the wisdom of our God taking place with the rise of one king, with the fall of the next, with the constitution of one nation, with the judgment of another people, with borders established along this river, with ships sunk in that sea. Every detail and every major occurrence in this world testifies to the power of God, the fact that His throne is established from of old, and therefore all through history, the showcase of God's majesty and strength has, uh, is, has demonstrated His divine timelessness. He is from everlasting, after all, from eternity. As we have said, He is not subject to anyone or anything. There is no God besides our Lord. Hence, the first commandment makes perfect sense with the actual nature and character of God. I am the one, He says, after all, to His children who has brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before Me. How dare you elevate a concept, an ideal, a philosophy, a graven image beside me? There is none to whom God is subject. He is over and above all. He is not even subject to time itself. He is Lord over time. This is Yahweh. This is Yahweh again, the name, the most hallowed name for the Lord in the Tetragrammaton, the four consonants that we see in the original language. Yahweh was the I am, the one revealed to Moses, the eternal God, the self-sufficient one, non-contingent, needing no other, the God over time. And so we see in divine timelessness, echoed in Psalm 93 too, again, the profession of Moses reiterated. Just a quick backtrack for you and a reminder, the only psalm I know of ascribed to Moses is Psalm 90. And he proclaims in similar words, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth, and the world from everlasting, and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And in similar pictures, he goes on, Similar to Psalm 93, verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. We worship a God whose majesty and strength are evident in the fact that He is timeless, that He has existed and His throne has been established from before time, and therefore all time is a stage upon which He demonstrates His majesty and strength. Third major point this morning, the majesty and strength of Yahweh evident in wonders of nature. Who's ever been to a national park? 
Anyone in this room been to a national park? Uh, someone shout out a, na- a feature in a national Why is it a national park? People go to a national park to see what? People go to a park to see stuff. Good answer. A little more specific. How about um, mountains? People go to a national park to see mountains. How about waterfall? Think of night. What's that? Houses. Houses, maybe. People go to a national park to see a rushing waterfall, a mountain, Judah. To worship God? Yeah, they should. Very good. Um, How about giant trees? Anyone seen any giant trees or pictures of them? Those are in national parks. Um, Anyone heard of the Grand Canyon, young people? Is it tiny or is it huge? That's right. So by these, well, I'll give you one personal example. This week, my wife took me down to the cities for a little birthday outing. Yeah, happy birthday to me. So anyway, we went down there to Minnehaha Falls, and it's just a small, on the scale of waterfalls, on the spectrum of waterfalls in the earth, I suppose it's not that big, you know, maybe 40, 50 feet tall. There's a lot of, a lot of water, nevertheless, rushing over this ledge, and it captivated our attention and many people who were there. People stood in front of it taking selfies. People were taking videos. And people were congregating around this uh, mighty river, as small as it might be in comparison to some. And as I was just looking at it, I, if someone told me, you know, in a half hour, enough water passes over that ledge that you will use in, your, in an average year of water use in your entire home, I totally would have believed them. I was thinking to myself, where does all this water come from? Where does it all go? And has this river been flowing for centuries? And it's just small in comparison to some. This is an example of the wonders of the Lord that we witness in nature. The floods, verse 3 of our text, have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders and many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. One commentator has noted that in this poetic language, the way the phrases are constructed You can almost imagine a tidal wave rising as it hits a continental shelf. Listen, it's kind of an ascending movement. The floods have lifted up. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their roaring higher, 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 mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. And then there's the crash of the wave on the shore. And if it's a big enough tsunami, it will wash miles of debris back out into the riptide. The Lord on high is mighty. This is the message of a natural wonder, like a wave, like the sea, like a river, like a canyon carved by water, likely post-flood in mere moments by, or perhaps hot mud after volcanic activity, changing for centuries the landscape in a mere moment, or rocky crags that jut up into the sky so high a cloud obscures the peak, or trees that have been there since the time that Jesus walked the earth that you have to get 15 people all in a line in order to circumvent their stump, the base of their trunk. And we stand before these things, and what do we see? We see evidence of the mighty works of our God. The floods have lifted up their voice, and so with this kind of ascending wonder, the author of Psalm 93 channels the voice of nature, if you will, and conjures images in our mind of floods, waterfalls, and seas. This poetry reflecting a crescendo, a crashing wave upon the seashore. Floods speak of destruction. Waters falls. We're amazed by the sheer volume. Seas are unfathomable 
in their expanse. Destruction, volume, expanse, flood, waterfall, seas. This is the voice of nature. And what does the voice of nature proclaim? Psalm 19.1 echoes accordingly. The heavens declare what? The, the glory of God. And the firmament what? Shows His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. That is to say, majesty and strength of Yahweh are evident in these things. In oceans, in mountains, in giant sequoias, in the heavens above, the too many to count stars uh, expanse and so forth. This is the voice of nature proclaiming to us the majesty and strength of our Lord, demonstrating unequivocally His universal Lordship. We also have the voice of history related to these events, and may I just simply recall to your attention our Genesis series. What are we studying in Genesis right now, kids? What are we studying in Genesis? Give you a hint, Noah. Yes, and what did Noah, what was significant in Noah's life? The flood, the great flood. Was there ever a greater flood than the flood in Noah's day? Will there ever be a greater flood since Noah's day? No. The voice of history speaks to the power of the greatest flood of all. And the voice that God proclaims in the rainbow is a promise that it will never occur again. And the voice of history speaks from Genesis 8 that we have been studying in 7 of precise calculations for this event. Do you remember previous points that we made? Author Moses goes to great detail and precise language to outline the scope, duration, and timing of this seemingly cataclysmic event. It was cataclysmic in its scope of judgment. However, it was nothing. Uh, It was not chaos at all. In fact, it was prescribed judgment by God's sovereign hand who with his caliber, who with his dial caliper, if you will, measuring down to the very atom, determined the scope, duration, and timing of this event. And what does this emphasize? This emphasizes to us the decree of Yahweh is responsible for the occasion of the great flood. And if he is responsible for the precise duration, extent, and timing of the great flood, then the argument is sort of from the greater to the lesser, if you will, than every other natural occurrence and occasion, is it not measured as well? That is the message in part of Noah's flood. Indeed it is. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. They have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. When the flood was washing over the world, destroying the sinful peoples in one fell swoop, one might have thought, I cannot imagine a power greater than this. Yet there was one who was greater than the flood, and he was the one who commanded the flood in the first place. Thus, the voice of nature and the voice of history summon at times the wonders of nature to emphasize to us the universal lordship of God, his majesty and strength apparent by these means. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Not only the voice of nature, not only the voice of history, but also the voice of Jesus echoes exactly this point. There are other references you may look up on your own time. This is not a standalone example. Think of Matthew 8, 23 through 27. These are in your notes if you have a copy. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. John 6, 16 through 21. All these accounts uh, record, they record, they document similar circumstances. Let us look at one illustrating for us God's sovereignty over nature and Mark 4.35, you'll recall as we read this story, I trust. On that day, 
when evening had come, he said to them, namely Jesus, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. You get the picture? A storm, the boat, the boat's men are losing control of the situation. They're about to be swamped, destroyed on the seas. Verse 38. But he, again, speaking of Christ, was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the storm and said to the sea. Anyone remember what Jesus said? Three words. Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So you see in the testimony of the miracles of Jesus Christ, and this happened more than once, a demonstration that the wind and the sea speak to the sovereign rule, to the universal lordship, to the majesty and strength of Yahweh himself and Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. We see in the voice of nature, the voice of history, and in, the, and in the voice of Jesus Christ himself, a callback to the claims of universal lordship, illustrated, which illustrated the sovereignty of our Lord over the seas all through Scripture. When Jesus said to the sea and to the storm, peace be still, we are to hear Psalm 29.3, we won't reference these today, it's Psalm 65.7, Psalm 89.9, Psalm 107.29, and there are many more, and for our purposes today, Psalm 93 in our ears. The message that this world and the waves and its waves stand at attention before the Lord of glory, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords of all earthly rule and authority and of nature itself, that the voice of the storm submits to the voice of Jesus Christ. And so we see His majesty and strength evident in the wonders of nature when He speaks to the storm, peace be still, and in an instant, the waters and wind obey. Last point this morning. The majesty and strength of Yahweh evident in divine decree. As our psalm comes to a close, we behold the final verse, verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness benefits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. There's yet one more witness, if you will. One more evidence of the majesty and strength of our God cited in our text, and that is divine decree, or God's divine decrees. You can use the term decree in two senses. One way, and perhaps the most close to our context, is the prescriptions of our God, His laws and His propositions laid forth in His holy word, in His special revelation. These are the decrees of our Lord. When you turn to Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all of the scriptures, you see over and over again the psalmist worshiping the Lord in awe because of His statutes, testimonies, decrees, His word. All of these are synonyms for the truth of the Lord revealed in His special revelation in His scriptures. Why is the psalmist in awe because of these? 
because he recognizes the significance, the power, the accuracy, and the authority behind those words. The psalmist knows in 119, as the psalmist does in 93, that the harmony of the scriptural laws of the Lord are a perfect match. They coincide with the harmony of the laws of nature because you have the same author over all. When the Bible gives us the Lord's principles for stewardship, relationships, economics, for family, for worship, for order, across the board, in our relationship with the Lord, the first table of the law, with our relationship with others, the the, uh, final six commandments of the ten, we see here evidence in the decrees of our God, of His majesty and His strength. It must be that God has created this world because even the pagan nations, according to Accordingly, testified to in Scripture, they were in awe. They said, who is the God of this nation that would give them decrees, if you will, as precise, as awesome as this? Make no mistake about it. We live in a pagan, rebellious, blinded, unbelieving worldview, a scenario and culture right now. They look upon the laws of Scripture and they think, oh, you know, what backward, archaic, uh, you know, Bronze Age goat herder wisdom is this, stoning for homosexuality. For heaven's sakes, I've never heard of such oppression. You know, we've done everything short of making those verses illegal to be uttered in the public space. And, you know, don't be uh, under any illusions. We may come, there may come a time where those things are, the laws and decrees of God are actually deemed illegal by a state which is in rebellion against the true authority. But a state, a people, an an individual or a culture who stands in rebellion against the decrees of God will be judged. That's the message of the flood. The message of the flood is there is a judgment to come. So bow before the sovereign who controls the stormy sea and who at a snap of his fingers can cause the waters to rise above the highest mountain on this globe by the span of 15 cubits. Bow before him. His decrees are holy, just, perfect, true immovable. They are enduring, just like His world. They are infallible. They last, and we cannot redefine them. We try to do so at our own peril, and we reap down, we, we call down the judgment of God upon our own heads if we presume to offer new decrees that are better, new, and improved for a progressive man that has moved past the old notions of a hierarchical God who in his, you know, oppression would stamp out his enemies. Ooh, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. This foolish uh, understanding of the revelation of the justice of our God displayed by modern sinful man will die in judgment if they do not repent. The divine decrees of our Lord speak to the majesty and strength of Yahweh. And if you don't understand them, that's a you problem. Ask the Spirit to open your eyes. If this seems foreign to you when you read a law, like don't boil the baby and the mother, a kid in the mother's milk, if that seems stupid to you, that's a you problem. You go to Scripture and ask God to reveal it to, to you, and until He does, you take it on faith that you are witnessing the glorious revelation. It would make sense that you, as a fallen, finite creature, you know, awake and aware in this tiny snippet of history would only understand a little bit. And the little bit you understand is by God's grace. But understand, beneath that is an iceberg of God's revelation, their glorious treasure for the unearthing. Have faith that God's decrees are amazing 
trustworthy. Holiness befits his house. His decree is also could be stated as his providence unfolding in history. Providence is the evidence in linear terms to the human observer of the eternal decrees of the forever changeless sovereign revealed to us in his majesty and strength as he exercises universal lordship from our perspective across time. Now these are the messages of Psalm 93. How should it move us? Notice the final phrase, holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Is that not similar to Isaiah's vision? When he sees the Lord, an evidence of his majesty and strength, the train of his robe filling the temple, indeed the whole earth full of his glory, as the seraphim testify, they sing, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That is to say, nothing unholy is worthy of the presence of of this majesty and strength revealed to you. Is this not similar to the reaction to the disciples in the boat when they realize that they're crossing this sea with one who commands in three words, peace be still, and the wind and the waves obey, and they are fearful of him? Peter goes on to say in another place, depart from me, a sinner. Notice what Isaiah says in the context here. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here comes the gospel picture, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And this prophet goes on to declare the substance that made that event possible. In Isaiah 53, you can read all about it. There would come a suffering servant, a sinless one, whose stripes would pay for your denial, marginalization, mockery, and your dismissal of the sovereign and holy God who has undeniably revealed, even through the testimony of nature, His strength and majesty to every human observer. If only they had eyes to see And so we ought to be humbled by the words of Psalm 93, as Isaiah was in chapter 6 of his prophecy, as Peter was moved upon the seas, and as the disciples expressed their fear. But we also have hope that in the death of the one who said, peace be still, our sins can be atoned for. So let us pray that God would reveal himself through his scriptures and through his world to us and his majesty and strength, and that it would move us to godly fear. Repentance, if we haven't done so already, for our sin. Consecration, holiness, sanctification, if we find ourselves in Him today. Confessing that we are unworthy of His presence, unless and until, by the shed blood of His Son, He makes us worthy of His presence. And so, we will witness His works, His majesty, in a whole new light, and live with increasing testimony, testifying to His universal Lordship. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the message of Scripture, which sets our mind aright, which brings perspective to wicked and fallen man, which removes blinders from the eyes of those the Spirit moves upon through these means. Awaken us, O Lord, to Your holiness. Let us view Your majesty and strength in the world around, chiefly in Your holy Scriptures, a whole new way. May it move us to walk in light of these truths 
in a way that gives you honor, worship, respect that you deserve. And may we trust in Christ alone to deem us worthy of your presence as he has died and suffered in our place to make atonement for our sin that would otherwise separate us from the God of majesty and strength. We confess that you are Lord of lords, King of kings, your God over time, and all things exist to point back to you. And one day when the balances are set aright, either by redemption or by judgment, the reckoning will prove that Jesus Christ is the only sovereign. On that day when every tongue confesses and every knee bows, it is our prayer that all within the sound of this message today will have repented, confess that Christ is Lord, and will worship with the elders who even now circle the throne, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that is slain, casting down their crowns as an offering before His presence, trusting in Him and Him alone as their hope and stay purchasing eternal communion in glory, in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth forever with all the saints. Thank you, Lord, for these promises assured in Christ, our King of kings. In His name we pray. Amen.